0: If you like what you hear on the Security Ledger podcast, you might want to check out one of our cybersecurity newsletters like the Daily Ledger or the Weekly Ledger. You can sign up for them at securityledger.com slash subscribe. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. This is episode number 79 for the week of January 8th, 2018. I'm Paul Roberts, the publisher and editor-in-chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode... With CES, a consumer electronics show, raging in Las Vegas last week, we're going to go deep with security researcher Jay Harris of Digital Interruption about flaws in connected toys being sold to children. But first, the UK policy based think tank, the Chatham House, warned last week that aging nuclear weapon systems in the US, the UK, and other nations are vulnerable to cyber attacks that could be used to start a global conflagration. Among their concerns, vulnerabilities in common industrial control systems that are used to manage weapons. To better understand the Chatham House report and what it means, we invited Eddie Habibi, the CEO of the firm PAS Global, into the studio to talk about how we got here and what, if anything, can be done to secure nuclear weapons systems and stockpiles from digital attack.
1: I'm Eddie Habibi, founder and CEO of PAS Global. It is an alarming report. It brings into light a concern that the OT, operational technology, cybersecurity community has been concerned about and has been creating awareness about. And that is the computer systems that control the industrial infrastructure, as well as some of the military installations and uh, submarines and and warships do utilize some of the commercial industrial control systems, such such as SCADA systems, programmable logic controllers. And what is unique? about these, uh, these nuclear weapons is that they precede the challenge of cybersecurity when they were uh, conceived of. However, clearly, clearly this report outlines the fact that they are not immune from cyber
0: attacks. I mean, we've heard a lot of reports uh, both during the Obama and more recently in the Trump administration about, you know, the U.S.'s outdated nuclear arsenal. I think people think about the missiles themselves and the warheads as being old. But actually, the bigger issue is really that many of these supporting systems are outdated. Um, And we've heard reports that, You know, some of these systems are still using, you know, five and a half inch floppy disks. I guess one way of looking at it is, well, doesn't that make us more secure that they're so aged and outdated that there's a kind of security through obscurity? Or should we be concerned that the systems used to manage these weapons are so old, uh, you know, 70s or 80s era computer systems?
1: The challenge uh, surrounding the nuclear Uh, arsenals is not only the five and a half inch floppy disks or the obscure control systems that were put in that have absolutely no connection to the internet. Even for those systems that are air-gapped, meaning that they are isolated from any uh, communication network, it is the surrounding infrastructure that is necessary to make these weapon systems work. And that encompasses everything from the launch uh, control room, the mission uh, control mission centers, to the communication lines that the decision makers have to utilize to communicate, to the detection mechanisms, the satellites, the systems that pick up on, on military activities around the world who would bring about awareness that there might be activities in terms of retaliation, etc. cetera, uh, you, you, you take that and you bring that forward to uh, some of the recent activities we have seen in whether it's social media or manipulation of news information that could lead to possibly escalation towards an, an unfortunate situation where you could have uh, a launch that was uh, basically a manipulated environment through cyber attack or a cyber scheme that had nothing to do with the control systems uh, within the nuclear weaponry.
0: I mean, one of the problems I know that we've talked about before is that often um critical infrastructure operators, let's say, don't believe that their systems are internet exposed or internet connected when in fact they are. I mean, what are some of the ways that these systems that people might assume are air-gapped and isolated from the public internet end up getting exposed to it?
1: There are a number of ways that they are exposed. The most obvious one is that these systems have to be patched. Some of them run Windows Operating systems, and as you know, we have the Tuesday uh, patch Tuesdays that come uh, once a month or once a week for various companies. Uh, Just introducing a patch to a system makes it vulnerable, even if it's uh, isolated from any corporate network or the internet. Another is having contractors or your own employees stick in a uh, USB drive into the control system. That can introduce viruses and malware. Finally, the one area that people really don't pay enough attention to that we believe is a serious cyber uh, issue is human error. Human error is one of the largest contributors to industrial incidents. And in this case, human error can, can also... Uh, be a contributor towards these cyber
0: risks. Okay, so if you're the U.S. um, military, you've got this huge infrastructure, a very old technology, and you have concerns about cyber risk. I mean, where do you even start, really? Is the solution to swap out all the old hardware and software with new hardware and software? Or is there a way to, to address cyber risk, you know, without a forklift upgrade of both the missile hardware and software?
1: An excellent question. The first thing that needs to happen, uh, from our perspective, this needs to be addressed holistically. Everything from at the lowest level going in and taking a inventory of the known asset, nuclear assets, and their surrounding facilities, their surrounding infrastructures, all the way to alignment in the decision-making process and communication processes amongst the leaders of those nine nations as to when there is a crisis, how do we behave, how do we communicate, what are some secure lines of communication, imagine a scenario whereby there is uh, activities that's picked up by one nuclear power nation but that activity happens to be a, a fa- false alert a, a, a perfect example of that not to not to uh digress too much is uh Shall We Play a Game? Do you remember that movie from the early 1980s? Yeah, I
0: was restraining myself to bring War Games into it, but since you have, yeah, exactly. That was the whole idea behind War Games was that humans were fallible um, and that we should automate this to bring in computers to, to, to control the launch process because they're more reliable.
1: And that's the irony of this whole situation, that those computers that were supposed to save us from ourselves are now the subject of these manipulations and attacks. And it really makes the, the situation much more complex than what we saw in War Games Uh, It was a simulated environment where the decision-makers at the Pentagon uh, were having to decide whether this is real or not. Now, in an environment like that, imagine if you have a situation like that and uh, communication lines are also uh, uh, attacked uh, through cyber and and you can not communicate with other leaders of of these nuclear weapons Uh, capable uh, countries it creates a very vulnerable situation that could easily get out of hand and uh, that is so different from when gets attacked and and you lose millions of dollars and some celebrities become you know get exposed Uh, this is the real stuff that can lead to some serious consequences
0: one of the challenges is that so much of the hardware and software that runs these systems, if not all of it, is classified. It is absolutely not open source. It's the epitome of closed source, custom-developed and classified software. So we really have no idea of the quality or integrity of the code or the systems themselves. Is there an easy way or is there any way for... Uh, the U.K. government or the U.S. government to shine sunlight on some of these systems, get people um, interrogating these systems for security vulnerabilities um, without exposing them to compromise?
1: The study references that governments need to engage academia and the broader private sector to help in this arena. There's definitely that that can help. That, that's an area where the governments don't necessarily move as fast as the private sector can. The downside of that, the challenge of that, is that those private companies would make, would have the software available to, to anybody who has the need for it. So this is truly truly, truly a situation that, that needs closer examination by every government of the world, and I think it's a, it's a challenge that um, uh, calls for collaboration uh, similar to when there is an incident and uh, countries go into a stand down in terms of running their, uh, uh, their um, practice missions and, and exercises yeah. just in the interest of respecting uh, the critical situations that, that exist at the time.
0: Okay, so if you are advising the U.S. military, Department of Defense uh, on this problem uh, as the CEO of PAS Global, what's your advice?
1: My, my advice very specifically would be make sure you have an inventory of every warhead and the surrounding control systems that control them. An inventory of communications and the redundancy of those communications and thirdly, policies uh, that are developed amongst nations to make sure we understand how to manage the threat of cybersecurity. This report is timely, it is serious. It requires the attention of not only the politicians around the world of the of the nuclear capable countries, but also the attention of academia as well as private sector cybersecurity providers uh, to bring together a force deal with this. We have lived with the threat of nuclear uh, weapons, uh, with the threat of nuclear disaster over the last 60, uh, almost 70 years. It would be such an absolute shame that some hacker somewhere could bring the world to an end through cyber vulnerabilities and cyber attacks. So this is call for action. And the the timing of this document couldn't be any more accurate.
0: Eddie Habibi, CEO of PAS Global, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us on the Security Ledger podcast.
1: You bet, Paul. It's been my pleasure.
0: Up next. The Consumer Electronics Show was held last week in Las Vegas and brought news of the next generation of smart, connected devices that will soon appear in homes and offices. But whether those devices are secure from hackers and protect the privacy of the data they collect and store is another matter entirely. And if we're to believe security researchers like our next guest, Jay Harris, of the firm Digital Interruption, it's safe to assume they're not. Harris recently received a bug bounty from the firm Toy Talk, which makes software used in connected toys like Barbie dolls. His discovery, a way to manipulate a talk to Thomas the Tank Engine mobile application so that you could send obscene or threatening messages to other Thomas users, won him that bounty. To get a better understanding of where connected things fall short, we're going to speak with Jay about how lax development practices and tools can cause security flaws to multiply across different products.
2: So uh, I'm I'm Jay Harris, a security consultant uh, from the UK working for Digital Interruption At DI, what we try and do is help developers to left-shift their security testing by helping um, them implement and develop tools and methodologies and techniques that they can use to perform some amount of security checks themselves. So by left-shifting, you're talking about
0: moving it closer to the development process itself and having it less be a, you know, here's what we produce and now, you know, hammer it.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so when we do pen testing, one thing we try and do is actually um, to feed back into that process. So rather than handing over just a PDF, you know, we can actually give uh, developers test cases that then they can use to check whether the the vulnerability has been fixed or not and whether it will be reintroduced in the future. Now, what we find is that the the frameworks there aren't aren't fantastic at the moment. That's an area that we we really want to try and uh, push.
0: I'm talking to you this week because you did some really interesting work on a connected toy by the firm Toy Talk. And this is a Thomas the Tank Engine mobile application for kids. Talk uh, just a little bit about how you stumbled on this particular application or how you chose it as a subject matter and what we know about Toy Talk, the company that produced it.
2: Um, I was really looking to just to do a few more uh, bug bounties. It's something that I, I kind of enjoy doing, obviously being a pen tester, hacker, Ripping things apart is kind of what I do for a living and also for fun. I decided to to look for some applications that were out there that were that had a, a bug bounty. So obviously looking at HackerOne, came across Toy Talk. and I have um, a fair amount of experience in mobile application testing. That's something that I I've done quite a lot of, and it's something that I really enjoy doing. So I was looking through uh, you know the, the mobile application that uh, mobile applications that were on HackerOne and came across. A toy Talk and initially I kind of dismissed it because I thought well how interesting can this application be decided to install it took a look and, and you know initially there w- it didn't look like there was much there you know the the first screen allowed you to add in your uh, added email address. You know, the application itself, what you could really do is, is talk to Thomas. But I thought, uh, since this is an application that is aimed at children, if we do find something interesting in it, it would be, uh, It you know, I personally would like to, you know, work towards helping to make that a slightly safer thing. So so that, that's kind of the process of, kind uh, why I, I picked, uh, picked this particular application.
0: Just to be clear, there's no physical toy here. This is really just a mobile app um, where kids could online um, talk to Thomas, like say things to him, record them saying things, and and
2: does he answer? Yeah, so it's actually pretty cool that the bug bounty that I did was in the Thomas application. The, there's a library that, that the application uses that's used by other toys from the same company so there's a barbie toy and then there's a uh i think a, a doll's house obviously you know we didn't use those for for this research we decided just to look at the mobile application because it's something that i'm more familiar with and is also easier to get hold of
0: so uh i'm guessing no no kids there jamal right <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, 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 kids. <laughs> Else, I'd have an excuse to buy Barbie, I guess. So yeah, that that was uh, yeah, kind of interesting in that the what we looked at was just one of the applications, but the, the technologies kind of shared between between all their products.
0: Uh, and this is pretty common that companies that do this type of work uh, often do it either for a whole range of products owned by the same product maker, um, you know, like Mattel or something like that, or maybe even for different toy makers, you know, across different
2: brands. Yeah, you don't want to, to to reuse a lot of work. Um, but what kind of one thing that I, I saw with this that was quite cool. So the way that it works is Thomas will ask you a question, and you press a little button in the application, and you speak to it. And Thomas has some idea of of what you're saying. And when I was looking at the network traffic, the, the voice recognition uh, was actually really good. So the, there's there, I think there's some logic built into the application that says you know if the you know if the cl- uh, child says you know yes, then just do this. If they say no, do this. Um, but but I was actually able to see you know a lot of the um, the speech the audio data that I was sending through it would come back uh, as text and I was actually really impressed by how well that worked. Uh, what types of things does Thomas ask you? Oh, to be honest, I, I didn't get past the first couple of pages. It was uh, it was too <laughs> painful. Yeah, there's actually a bit of a story in that. Um, so uh, my, my business partner, uh, when I was doing this research, I was obviously in the office and. I was playing with the application over and over again. A few days later, she was humming the Thomas the Tank Engine theme tune, and she had no idea why it was stuck in her head. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's a catchy one.
2: Uh, I've heard it myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't get past the first, the first couple of things. You know, I just needed to get a request mostly for this, for this research.
0: So, um, so this initially looked to be a fairly straightforward a mobile app, under the covers, was it a little bit more complex? And you said this is something where you're recording voice snippets. Some of them are being processed locally on the mobile phone, and I'm guessing others are being sent up to the cloud for analysis and, and response. Is that how it
2: works? Yeah, so all the voice traffic gets sent to the cloud for analysis. Um, and so when I was initially looking at the this, this, this piece of research, um, it didn't really look like there was much attack surface there. As I said before, you know, you... You log in with an email address, uh, no password. Then whenever you open the application in future, it kind of auto logs you in. But it didn't really like it was doing much. Uh, but I did notice, I took a look at the the website for the application uh, and for Toy Talk, and they they seemed to hint at somewhere that you could listen to the audio that your children had recorded. And obviously that only gets recorded when the child presses the the button in the application to record their voice. So it's not doing, uh, it's not doing recording continuously of of the kid. It's just when they choose to. You know, once I realized that that feature was there, I thought, well, actually, if there's going to be a vulnerability, that's that's where it's going to be. That that's what the attack surface in this case will be. It will be, you know, are we able to do something cool with that that web service or the website that the parents use to to listen back to their kids? Hey, this
0: is Paul from the Security Ledger. If you're hearing my voice now, it means that you're a loyal listener of the Security Ledger podcast. To thank you for listening, we've got a special Easter egg offering, a -a one-of-a-kind Security Ledger T-shirt with a cool custom IoT security-themed artwork. Quantities are limited. To get yours, just go to securityledger.com slash T-shirt and fill out the order form. We'll ship it to you and be sure to include the special code to qualify for the order. That is SLT 2018 SLT as in security ledger T as in t-shirt 2018 as in it's 2018 so talk a little bit you've done a lot of work on mobile applications generally where do mobile applications whether they're for kids toys or, or other things you know fall down on security and then how did the toy talk you know Thomas the Tank Engine mobile app stand up at least you know when you're looking to pick low-hanging fruit
2: so i i guess um the the most common thing i see with mobile applications is uh, kind of lack of binary protections now there is some kind of argument you know do you really need need this these kind of protections in an application so these are things like you know root detection ssl pinning um you know tamper detection things like that things that just harden the application so prevent people like he's...
0: you from taking it apart and seeing how it works, basically.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So when I look at an application, that's one of the first things I check because that gives me an indication uh, of, of how mature the the security in the application will be. If it's an application that has all these protections, it's going to take me significantly longer to to pull it apart and even to start to understand what the application is doing compared to one that has none of these protections. Like as an example, I remember doing some research into um, into Android Wear when it when it first came out, and the a lot of the code was obfuscated, and it took me, you know, I'd say a good couple of weeks to really understand what was going on. Compared to something like uh, this Thomas app that wasn't using obfuscation, you know, that that took literally minutes to reverse it and, and try and find you know interesting parts of the code or, or see you know try and find areas that I want to spend more time investigating. So yeah, that's one of the, the the biggest thing. In terms of actual vulnerabilities, are uh, is is tends to be things like where data is being stored. So this wasn't really an issue for this application, at least yeah, in any way that I could really see. But I've definitely seen it in the past where applications, mobile applications, will you know they will use they will maybe store something within the sandbox and it might be encrypted, but the encryption key is hard coded into the application, or they assume that because something's in the sandbox it's protected. And that isn't always the case. You know, If I can back up the application from the from the phone, I might have access to that sandbox. Or if it's running on a router device, I'll have access to the sandbox, etc. So, So th- they're some of the, the big things I, I tend to see when doing uh, application testing.
0: Did Toy Talk do a good job? Uh, obviously, it didn't do the um, anti-tampering and code obfuscation uh, on some of those other security measures. Did they do a better job?
2: Yeah. So um, a lot of the things that they were storing weren't particularly sensitive really, uh, from at least from the application part. But, but I think that's mostly just due to the nature of what the application was doing. Um, you know, it didn't need to store things like credit card details. So there was no need to um to, to worry about how they were storing it. They they didn't have obfuscation, but they did have certificate pinning, which was something that I needed to bypass um to perform the rest of the the research
0: certificate pinning what what does that prevent you from doing as a uh, would-be adversary
2: it will stop me from intercepting uh network traffic uh which is you know which is awesome really because mostly so if an application doesn't use certificate pinning it's really easy for me to intercept traffic i install uh you know the burp ca certificate on the on the device and i can use burp proxy to to intercept the network traffic with certificate pinning it checks the one of the certificates in in the, the certs that have been presented to you now depending on where you pin you can pin you know on the leaf or the or the routes difficult or, or somewhere in between they have different advantages and disadvantages so certificate pinning is something that we need to bypass when we're doing when we're doing tests on mobile applications so that we're then able to start to intercept the traffic and see what's going between the, the web server and the device
0: and you were able to do that in this case?
2: Yeah, so you know it's, it's always going to be possible to bypass a certificate pinning because I have access to the application. It's running on my device. Now the question is how how hard is that to bypass? Um, in this case, it was actually pretty simple. Uh, all I needed to do was remove the certificate that was embedded in the APK, and I think that it had some logic that failed open, so when the certificate doesn't exist then it just, it didn't use certificate pinning. So the logic would say something like, you know, pull the certificate that's stored in the assets directory of the APK, mm-hmm. then compare that to the certificate that you've been presented when you try to make a network connection. And if it matches, then we know that no one's trying to intercept our traffic and we can use that connection safely. Uh, if it doesn't match, somebody's probably trying to perform a man in middle attack. Uh in, in this case, just a simple just deleting that from the APK, resigning the APK and installing it, let us bypass certificate pinning.
0: Okay, so not trivial, but uh but doable. And what did you f- find when you were able to look at that traffic?
2: Lots of um lots of like analytics type stuff. Nothing that I would say was particularly sensitive, just you know what the user was doing with the application when they opened it and things. And then then I started to see the traffic about when you actually made a when you pressed the button and spoke to Thomas. And what I found there was that when it made the request to to the cloud to send the audio data, it sent with it an ID. Then, the, so when I saw that happening, um, obviously I tried, I, I created another account and swapped IDs to see whether it was possible to send audio from one account to another. So the, the kind of the attack scenario here would be, you know, you get somebody's account ID and you can send messages to to their account that say whatever you want so you know that it would might be something quite profane or or, you know something that maybe (laughs) you know imagine you go to listen to your your kids say something cute to thomas and and you hear you know some some dude swearing you instead so so that's the kind of the the attack scenario that we were going for we were able to do that the the second thing we had to ask them was okay so the id it looks random it looks like you know you wouldn't be able to guess it is there going to be going to be a way to um, to access the ID you know based on something that we do know, such as an email address, so the next part of the research was to to try and find that and what did you find? There was a web service that the application used um, that that basically just returned that that uh, account ID based on the username that you sent it so I guess this happens so that it could do that auto login log thing at the beginning, so when the application opens, yeah, and right. it logs you in. It what, is, what it's doing, and I've uh, looked at the network traffic and confirmed this, but it sends your username to this web service and then just downloads the account ID and then it uses those for for subsequent requests. We were able to just, you know, send obviously any email address to this web service and then get an account ID. And so with that, we could go from email address to account ID and then with the account ID, we could log into you know, their account. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But we also found that there was no authentication on the audio themselves. Uh but this was actually reported by an- another company. But because the IDs in this case were were not guessable, you know, the the risk there is fairly minor.
0: Yeah, this is an API that's used by other toys as well. Do we have a sense of how, you know, for example, a Barbie might use this API? Is it all around the same set of features and functionality? So, are are these problems obviously more generic than just uh, Thomas a Tank Engine?
2: Yeah, so so in this in this case, it would be fairly generic, and um, any any toy that was using this library would be vulnerable to this this kind of attack. You know, you'd be able to. Add your voice with with whatever you wanted into the parents' kind of online portal for viewing the messages. To be honest, when when we when I started this research, it was on a, another one of their applications uh, called um, Speaker Zoo, Uh mm-hmm. and and that was a very similar thing, but rather than Thomas, it was just cartoon animals. And I think they discontinued that for some reason halfway through my research so then I switched over to Thomas because that was you know what they they had just released. I wonder if there's a different attack surface for some of these things you know with a physical toy you know that there might be a different use case but like as I said without an actual Barbie to kind of sit down and and play yeah. with so to speak it, it's it's kind of hard to to really see the impact of that. So you found this under the auspices
0: of a Toy Talk bug bounty program, so that's great news, right. and you reported yep. it to them, and obviously you're talking about it now because the problems have been addressed, is that right?
2: They have. Yeah, yeah, of course.
0: And your interactions with Toy Talk, were they pretty receptive and um, professional in the way that they handle this?
2: They they were, yeah. So um, it took uh, a little bit of time to to kind of get them to understand the impact, because uh, initially. Uh I didn't have a um a foolproof of concept for them. I said, you know, we were able to get the account ID. Um, we were able to to do this and this request here uses the account ID, et cetera, et cetera. Um and so initially that they they didn't really believe that there was a vulnerability there, but then Of course, I, you know, I sent them a full proof of concept and, and, and they accepted that as an issue. So it it took a bit long for them to, to, to go through the process of actually agreeing it was a vulnerability, but once they did, uh, they, they fixed it fairly quickly. And then the second issue, the one with the email, um, yeah, they fixed that, I think within, uh, like a, a week or so.
0: So this is like, I mean, your research brings up stuff the, you know, issues that we've encountered before. And in fact, just this week, I think VTech, which is a a toy maker uh, here in the U.S., agreed to pay a $600,000 fine to the Federal Trade Commission over um, some vulnerabilities in their toys. That goes back, I think, to 2015. But all of these toy makers that are making connected toys, first of all, it seems like a lot of them have a physical toy coupled with a mobile app. That seems to be a pretty common configuration. And they all seem to struggle with this balance between security and usability or playability, I guess, right? I mean, is this something that
2: is easily resolved? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Easily resolved? No, because there's there's always going to be a trade-off, right, between security and usability. Um, when I, I used to do a lot of work with some banking applications, and the most secure banking mobile applications that were used, they had to make compromises in terms of usability. Um, you know, that's not to say that they were unusable or that they were they became difficult, but you know, the registration process would take a little bit longer. You needed to do things that weren't always obvious from a user's point of view of why you needed to do it. Versus some of these newer applications, banking applications that are just super quick and simple to use. Um, so it is definitely a hard thing to try and solve uh, i think what toy talk are doing is probably a good way you know they do seem to limit the functionality of the application so you know it's not capturing all data and you know at the end of the day the the yeah the feature of the application is you speak to thomas and or, or barbie or whatever and there isn't much more um so and because they have a bug bounty it means that you know security researchers are able to yeah. report issues when they find them and i i think you know that in itself you know do, does lend that, that in itself is a, a kind of a good way to handle security if the product has been properly tested um beforehand and it's been developed understanding security principles so i think you know once you start to do the, all those things yeah security security vulnerabilities will happen uh i think it's it's important to as long as you're not releasing stuff that you know is broken or that you, you know uh, you've developed without thinking about security where the attacks are trivial, then um, yeah, that, then I think that's, that's really the, the, the best you can do. If you're going to have a toy that is going to be connected to the internet and data is being shared and all these things, there, there is a risk involved with that.
0: And just to be clear, you, you weren't able to figure out a way to get Thomas himself to spew obscenities back at the child. <laughs>
2: No, no. It, it downloads just yeah, it downloads audio files and things for, for that. So I guess, I guess you could change the audio file that it was actually downloading, but that would have to be an active man in middle attack and with certificate pinning. Um, Back to work, Jamel. Would. <laughs> fact, I'll look into that. I'll, I'll see if I yes. get someone to swear at me. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked you needed me to tell you that. One
0: question would be, we started talking about kind of trying to move security testing and, and development you know, left, shift it left. I mean, in your experience, toy makers, connected toy makers, are they still following pretty traditional uh, development processes or is this awareness of, uh, we need to, we can't just try and, you know, slap on security after we've already developed this thing. We, we really have to be talking about it and working on it much earlier in the process.
2: So so what I'm seeing is that a lot of, uh, a lot of general, you know, IoT style devices, they have to be quite quick to market and because that security is one of the things that that goes unfortunately it's the first thing that they don't think about because adding security into things can take more time so yeah I'm not, re- I'm not really seeing some of these smaller IOt style things uh, companies really trying to left shift security testing because you know realistically, I think what if they could realize that by doing it early, then actually you get the security in without the, the headaches that come with a, a pen test or security test at the end of development, you know, which can be expensive, which can, you know, require you to, to redesign and rewrite a lot of your applications when that's not possible, when you need to be the first to market. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not really seeing that shift, really, with, with some of these companies.
0: Jamal Harris of Digital Interruption, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast.
2: Thanks very much.